Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Today, I chatted with George Gottel, Chief Creative Officer and Co-Founder of UXIS, a strategic global design consultancy. But it's also so much more than that. When George and his team are working with a client, whether that's Sephora, H&M, or IHG, they're cultivating a one-of-a-kind, meaningful experience. He honed the skill when he worked at Nike, which taught him how to craft ideas and tell a story. In fact, the former fashion designer has a soft spot for retail in particular. He used to own his own interior store called Relic in LA. It was a passion project of his that has extended to his work at Uxus. Retail is a show, he says, and I love putting on a show. Hi, I'm here with George. George, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you very much, Stacey. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. It's exciting. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. Um, I was originally born in Los Angeles, uh, one of the few native Los Angelians, <laughs> um, and grew up in, mostly in Orange County. So I was living actually by the ocean most of my life. So I'm literally a beach boy. Love it. And were you always creatively minded? Do you have any early memories of design or creativity or anything that might hint at where you ended up? Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, I've always been intrigued with imagination and creativity, even from a very young age. Um, one of the things I used to love to do was, I don't know if anyone remembers Play-Doh, if Play-Doh's still around or not, but... Oh, um, my kids have it. It's all around Okay, the well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would take... It, it, well, back when everything was analog, because I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the dinosaurs became extinct, um, uh, there used to be maps of Disneyland. Now, this is even before there were Disney Worlds and Disney everywhere there is now. Uh, there was only one Disneyland in Anaheim, California, and I would lay out the map of Disneyland. And the way they did it is they made little icons of all the rides. And I would, when I was like four or five years old, make out of Play-Doh the little ride icons dimensionally and place them on the map. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of bizarre. But anyways, I've always, I've always loved, um, you know, making things. I always loved using my imagination. So, yeah. Ever since I was young, I was creative. Was anyone in your family creative too? Your mom, your dad, or did they have any influence on you? Not really. Um, they they didn't discourage me and they didn't encourage me either. So it was sort of this, you know, I kind of did my own thing and, and I lived in this kind of, you know, imaginary world like I think a lot of kids do. Yeah. Did you travel a lot as a kid or any other kind of influences? Yeah, actually a huge amount of influence. Um, my parents were both foreign, so I'm a first generation uh, American. Um, my mother was Costa Rican and my father is German. So I grew up in a more or less foreign kind of cultural context in the sense that I had a lot of Latin influence, obviously, and also the European influence from my father. So um, that immediately kind of set me apart from everyone else because, you know, I mean, obviously my mother would make, you know, traditional dishes and same thing with my dad. So we didn't, I didn't really have a very traditional sort of quote unquote American upbringing. I guess ultimately that is American, mm -hmm. uh, being an immigrant because everyone pretty much except for the native Americans are. Um, but yes, I had a very kind of foreign influenced upbringing. Love it. Uh, I can imagine those meals so different, right? <laughs> 
between uh, goulash on goulash and dumplings on one end and tamales and uh, squid in its own ink <laughs> over <laughs> rice on the other end. <laughs> Very similar, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the whole spectrum. Um, and so did you end up going to school for design or tell us a little bit about, you know, yes. your, your education? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I had a, a, you know, a pretty normal upbringing in terms of education. I, I went to, I got a scholarship to Otis Parsons. So at the time Parsons had an affiliate in LA called Otis, uh, which was the kind of definitive, uh, fine art school in, in, in Los Angeles. And I took the fashion design course there. I became a Parsons fashion graduate. Um, yeah. Just Pretty like impressive, yeah. All the famous people out there yeah. that, that have in the past. Um, yeah. And uh, I started my career as a fashion designer. So I, I, you know, I've never known anything else but a creative career. What was your first job out of, out of school? Uh, yeah, I went to work for a company called Jimmy's with a, with a Z. And uh, they were very famous for uh, this kind of Velcro uh, waistband that they had um, for surfers. So it would be so that they, the, the, the waistband would be flat when you lay on the surfboard. And I ended up translating that concept into all these different types of garments. And one of them was this, a sarong skirt that you could kind of use the Velcro to close the skirt. In any case, that became an enormous hit, and Jimmy's became very famous, um, especially in the surfwear industry. And um, yeah, then at that point, I became a bit sought after as a designer because I kind of made all this money for that company. Um, yeah, and kept working in in the fashion business for a couple of years. Um, it was hard. It's a hard business. Um, and I decided, I got really inspired by seeing um, these freeze-dried flowers um, and decided to open a store on La Brea Boulevard um, selling freeze-dried flowers. The store was called Relic. Uh, and I had that for about three years. Cool. Then um, the Rodney King riots hit. I don't know if anyone remembers those, but that was a, kind of a devastating time in Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles really just, I mean, the riots in the city just really took over the city. Right. <laughs> and a friend of mine who was living, uh, actually a fellow student of mine who I, who I knew since college, um, said, you know, why don't you come up to Oregon, uh, to Portland and work for Nike? And I was like, oh my God, what do you want me to go up to the Lumberjacks? You know, I like, had no idea what a fantastic place uh, Portland was. And so I went up there and, of course, fell in love with the city. And um, I was hired by Nike. And that kind of set my career off for a long time. Actually, Nike uh, was my was my uh, employer for many years. And what did you do at Nike and how did you evolve there? Um, yeah, well, I started with at it, being a designer with the, with the, at, the, at the time they called it special makeups, um, which was basically working directly with the private labels of all their biggest chains that they would sell to. So like Foot Locker, Foot Action, all those companies. And I would design the garments that would go with the shoes that they were buying. So it was a really basic job, but it, it took me all over the U.S. because I had to fly to all the different headquarters and meet with the buyers and listen to what they had to say about why they were buying the shoe and then interpret that into uh, a series of garments. And um, I developed a method that um, increased their sales hugely. So I, I created this sort of portfolio method where the buyers could select the silhouette and the colors that they wanted. And so they, they really were co-creating with me. 
which of course made the sales skyrocket because of course their ego became involved in the purchase. Not only, uh, you know, they (laughs) helped design it. Um, And so I I was promoted to inline design work and um, eventually invited to uh, uh, be part of the world, um, the world cup project, the world 98 world cup project that Nike basically launched there. Well, to the American listeners, uh, the soccer division, but to the European listeners, the football division. Um, and I, uh, working with the team, I came up with a concept, what was called engineered apparel. And that really set off a huge, uh, kind of momentum behind this idea of taking apparel beyond just simply technical and performance, but actually engineering it to the specifications of the athletes. And, uh, that, got me promoted to creative director there for apparel. Amazing. What did you learn there? What, what, what have you taken, taken away from your experience at Nike? Nike was amazing for me. I mean, Nike really opened the door to so many things. Um, when I was with the company at the time, I don't know what it's like now, um, but when I was there at the time, it was really entrepreneurial. You could really make a difference as an individual. Um, they welcomed input in terms of like different ideas and, um, but at the same time, they also really helped you become a better designer and, and just a better person in a lot of ways. I mean, they really helped educate me. They, you know, the first time I went to Europe was with them and the, you know, the first time I did a lot of things was because of Nike and they really supported and nurtured their talent there, um, and I think the thing that I took away, the thing that's probably the most important that actually has just really led to the success in my career overall is the ability to craft an idea and tell a story. Being able to put together an idea and then being able to tell an evocative story behind that idea is really one of the reasons why I've been able to be as successful as I have been. And Nike is the one that really taught me how to do that. Yeah. Is there one project looking back that you? you know, really loved or was, you know, maybe not, I guess your big break at Nike, was it the engineered apparel? Was it, you know, what what do you think was the one thing that you did there that really sticks with you? Well, I think um, there were several milestones there in my career. I think one of them was developing this ability, this way of selling products to our, our, you know, the biggest chains that they had. Um, I also was very active in transforming the fit of the garments and pushing to get better. Um, the, what, the, the concept behind engineered apparel was like, okay, guys, you know, why are we looking at our competitors? We should be looking at the world's best apparel brands. And that means looking in the world of fashion. That means looking in the world of couture and seeing how they finish and how they cut things. We need to be on the same level, but with the idea of performance behind it. And so that was, that's what engineered apparel was about. It was about creating the best garment for the specific sport. And, um, you know, I think that was a huge milestone because I think at that point they viewed what they, what they were doing before is they were looking at all their competitors, seeing what they were doing versus just creating the best. And that really transformed their perspective in terms of what apparel could mean. And that was a huge milestone, definitely for me, but also transformative for the apparel division at Nike. And one of the things that I really worked on there was also transforming. There's a thing um, in the fashion industry called a block. And a block is your basic garment. It's your basic fit. So how the armhole hangs, how the neck hangs, how the shoulders hang, all those things. 
And I went through all of the blocks that Nike had in their apparel division and tried to transform and improve them so that we could have the best cut in the industry. And, you know, eventually it happened. (laughs) It took a while. And I think, you know, again, one of the things I learned how to do is also anticipate because as a designer at Nike, I had to work two years out. So I had to create a collection and try to anticipate what customers were looking for two years out, you know. And so that really sharpened my my ability to kind of spot trends that potentially would develop in the future. And that also has been a huge help and support in my career. Right. Well, it seems like such a simple idea, right? Just make the best that you can. But, you know, it just flipping that switch, I mean must have just elevated what Nike was. I mean, and you were there in the 90s when they were, you know, yeah. just growing tremendously. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, you, you would think so. But see, they, they really, the fashion word was the F word at Nike. So you couldn't, you couldn't bring it up. And they didn't want to look at fashion brands. You couldn't talk about them. And it's like, guys, but those are the best garments, right? <laughs> not yeah. the athletic brands. The, at the time, the athletic brands were really schleppy, you know, polyester, really quick and cheap. You know, there was no care, there was no design involved in in actually cutting the garment to the body and and actually cutting the garment to the activity. Like, how can you improve the cut of a garment so that the athlete could perform better in it? And and that was a huge breakthrough. Yeah, so cool. So why did you decide to leave Nike? Well, Nike was extremely kind to me and Nike ended up moving me to Europe to open a lifestyle division here. Um, and that's where I moved because I, I live in Amsterdam now and I've been living in Europe now since 1998. Um, they moved me here, uh, to open the lifestyle division for Europe. Um, it was a, a white label project basically. Uh, doesn't, I don't think it exists anymore. And it was the beginning of Nike dipping their toe in the world of fashion and style and right. acknowledging that, that they are as much part of fashion as anything else. And I think nowadays that's obvious, but back then it was not. And um, so I moved here and what they were going to do is I had to work one year in Hilversum, which is the city just outside of Amsterdam where their headquarters are. And then I would be moved to London to work at a pod that they had in London for two other designers and myself. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I mean, it was all expense paid. Like, I don't think they have these packages anymore, you know, but in any case, (laughs) I didn't have it rough. Um, It was very, very nice. They were very generous. And it was a tremendous learning experience for me because it was the first time I actually had to live outside of the U.S. Um, And that's very, very different than just simply visiting a country. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Nike was incredible. I, I... Lived for one year in Amsterdam, um, loved it. Amsterdam is an amazing city. It's even more amazing than back then. It was when I first came here. It was a, a beautiful place, but now it's just like crazy, fantastic. Um, then they moved me to London when London was booming, and that was a really eye-opening experience. I had never seen or been in a city like that before. Um, and this, it was a city that I think was in some ways even more progressive than New York. Like if we, if we take New York and LA, I mean, I've always been a big city boy. Right. Um, but if you take a city like New York or LA, they're great and they're quite international, but nothing like London. Because I think European cities have the adjacency to different cultures is so much closer. Right. Um, so the mix of culture is so much more elevated and intense. So you have so many different types of people walking around, speaking all these languages all the time. And um, anyways, 
Um, then I got headhunted by um, an Italian company called Mandarin Duck. And I moved uh, from London. I quit Nike because they just made me this offer. <laughs> it's funny that they're Italian and they, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to live on the cliche. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was this crazy offer. It was so well paid. And I had to go live in Bologna, Italy. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it was a big change. Um, one of the things about living in Italy, unlike Holland, is you do need to learn the language. I mean, I still don't speak Dutch fluently. And I've been here now since 2003. Right. So um, I learned Italian. So I speak fluent Italian. It, it helped that I speak fluent Spanish because my mother. Um, and, uh, you know, it was that was a very interesting and difficult and challenging experience. It was it was really rewarding in some ways. Um, but I think I wasn't prepared for the culture shock of how companies are run in Italy versus how they're run in the United States. So it was a big, <laughs> it was a big shift to say the least, especially coming from such a well-organized, you know, well-run mm -hmm. company like Nike to a family-run company, even though it was a large company. Um, and so that, that transition was really difficult. Between that and also learning Italian that I, I actually learned just from listening, believe it or not. And and just understanding sort of the cultural context, I, after two years, I decided then to open my own business and move back to the Netherlands um, because the Netherlands is so business friendly. I mean, they really incur encourage foreign investment and entrepreneurship here. It's, it's very easy to, to immigrate to the Netherlands if you open a business. And um, yeah, I, I moved here, opened uh, the company I have now, Uxus, and I've been here ever since, since 2003. Real quick before we go to access, what um what were you actually designing in Italy? What kind of clothes or I was the global creative director for Mandarina Duck, which is an Italian bag and fashion brand. So I did like um they're they're this weird kind of fusion. I don't think they exist anymore. There's this weird fusion of kind of technical bags with fashion bags, and the same thing. Um, was it, they're famous for their luggage. Let's put it that way. And um, and then they, I also made uh, clothing. You know, well, I didn't make it myself, but obviously I directed. You know, the entire kind of lifestyle component of that company. Interesting. Okay, so Uxus, what did you want to create? What what were you hoping your business would be? Because did you want to do any more fashion, or is this where you wanted to go more into interior spaces and branding? You know, it's definitely a shift. Yeah. And yeah, it was a huge shift. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I've, I've, I've had, you know, basically um, three careers really. Um, so, you know, when I opened Uxus, I looked back on um, the store I had in LA relic and that was really a passion project. And um I had, it was very successful. I was in the LA Times several times. You know, we had all kinds of celebrities as clients. Um, we were sort of the talk of the town. And um, it was, that was focused primarily on interiors. Um, and that was really where I, I've always had a passion, even, even going back to like modeling the Disneyland, you know, uh, map. It's, it's, it was always for me about spaces and journeys and, and how you move through, through an environment. And uh, so when we, when I opened Uxus, I, I used to, 
to work my way through school. Um, the scholarship paid for most of my tuition, but then obviously I needed to have money for food and other things. And um, so I used to work as a visual merchandising associate um, for many years uh, to earn extra money because you could do that at night. Right. And so because of my VM knowledge and my retail knowledge, um, opening access was really easy and very natural for us. So uh, we started with... Uh, with Levi's as our main account. And we were doing uh, basically retail campaign work. Um, so all the kind of uh, retail marketing work that the brand needed. And it was sort of our kickoff um, as a client and things kind of snowballed. Um, you know, it was literally, I, I would say it was two men and a dog, you know, working out of the back of a house, seriously. And Uxus, you know, 10 years later was over a hundred employees and we sold it to a big multinational company. So yeah, you yeah. I mean, our client list is enviable. Um, not only do we work in the world of hospitality, such as hotel design and restaurant design, but we also work in the world of, you know, fashion, consumer goods, um, you know, things that aren't like, you know, things like petrol stations. I mean, Shell is one of our biggest clients. So, you know, we've, we've evolved into something that was always very natural, which is the story. And I think today more than ever, that's super important. Like customer, everyone talks about customer experience, right? The experience is now the most important thing to sell. Well, we've been doing experience since the day we opened because that was always the foundation of how we worked. We looked always to the psychology of the customer to help drive how we would design and build something. And, um, you know, for us, it was all what we called the customer takeaway. And it wasn't what they were buying. It was what they were thinking. How did they feel after they left the experience? How did they feel after they left the store? Because in the end, that's what a brand actually sells is the, is the, is the sensation to want to return. Right. And so when we designed spaces, we designed it with that mindset. And at the time, it was incredibly progressive. No one was talking about that. And we would win pitches. I mean, I remember once we had a year where our pitch win rate was like 85%. It was like crazy. Like everything we got involved in, we, we won simply because the brands were really responding like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. And it worked. You know, um, we still have some of the world's, you know, most exciting brands working with us to create these experiences and journeys. And I hate to even use that word because it's so overused, but that, that was sort of the, the foundation of where we started. It was all like, okay, so what's the perception? Like, you know, we started designing windows and displays and, and using them as media and communication tools, which now in the end is what a retail store is about, right? So retail stores are no longer about transactional things. They're about these kind of communication media experiences. And so, you know, we were way ahead of the curve. And because of that, we're also really good experts at it. You know, we've right. had a lot of practice. It's amazing. Can we go back to Relic for a second? So were you selling interior accessories and... Yeah. Yeah, so we it was a very romantic store. Um, that's why it was called Relic. Um, it was very, uh, it was all about the past and about this kind of idealized romance. So uh, a lot of vintage furniture pieces. Um, we made uh, custom iron furniture, but like in the in the romantic Italian sense. So like you know that ornate kind of gilded Italian stuff. Okay. It was like that, but 
you know, we chipped white paint and, and then, um, you know, painted flowers. And then our, our biggest seller and our kind of innovation was our freeze-dried flowers. So we, okay. we would use um, a taxidermy machine to dry the flowers, which left the flowers looking fresh. So when you dry uh, flowers in a taxidermy machine, first of all, it takes two weeks. And what it does is it freezes the flower and then it, it, then it draws the ice out. So the membranes, and this is why you can taxidermy an animal inside a machine like that. The membrane of the plant doesn't collapse. So when you pull the flower out, the color and the shape of the flower are intact, but it's like as light as a piece of paper. It has no moisture in it. And so it allows the, the flower to stay fresh for like about six, eight months without losing anything. And, and then if you put it you know, near sunlight, it'll fade, but that's pretty much about it. So how did you figure that out? Like, were you just uh, playing around? I mean, um, a friend of mine, well, it wasn't a friend of mine. It's a, a, a person who worked actually uh, for the museums in Los Angeles had a taxidermy machine. Ah. And so I stuck some vegetables. I, I, I put some, le- I put a lemon. I went so they put, I put a rose. I put anyways, I put a bunch of junk in the corner. This, these machines are enormous, by the way. You could stack three people in them easily laying down. Yeah, it, they're gigantic. Um, we would do thousands of flowers at a time, um, especially because it, it took two weeks to, to have the process. Well, yeah, so, if it was a small machine and took two weeks, probably wasn't a good business model. <laughs> so yeah, Not at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so we would have these huge trays of flowers. Anyways, I just stuck those things in there and was like, oh, wow, look at that. It works, so you know? Cool. And so, yeah, it, it was, and that's why we became so famous because everyone, like, we would take um, a lemon and hollow it out and use the, cut the top off and, and glue the top at the bottom so it was like a little vase, you can imagine. Yeah. And then we would fill it with uh, daffodils and put a French ribbon around. I mean, women would scream, they would come in and they would literally go nuts. Um, and they would buy everything and it was pretty much price was no object. And so what we ended up doing as well is we would go out, we would get a bunch of vintage things like little teacups and, you know, little old silver, you know, teapots or, you know, just junk and fill it with flowers and people would go crazy because, you know, it had the nostalgia of something old and then it had the beautiful color of the flowers and we would coordinate everything around, you know, the, the object it was sitting in and yeah. Amazing. Um, I think we should bring it back. So, Uxus, tell us about the name. What did you? What? what what's behind it? Well, if you look at the name uh, graphically, it's you times us, hmm. and that's actually the original name of the company. The original name of the company was you times us, Got it. and um, because we started the company in Italy. <laughs> And Italians don't speak English. And if you tried to talk to anyone about your company and giving them a website and you had to spell out Y-U-S-T-I-M-E-S-U-S, forget it. (laughs) (laughs) So it was easier to say (laughs) Uxus. Also, Italians don't use Y in their alphabet. They don't use Y at all. So uh, you have to say always Y. And it was just like, it was a nightmare. So we, we just made this an acronym and it worked. Awesome. Amazing. Okay. So I love that you do retail, you do branding, you do hospitality. Do you, how do you collaborate amongst your team? You know, or how, I guess, is, how is it set up? Do you let the different studios work, you know, get ideas from each other? Is it, you know, very collaborative or is it very... Absolutely. I think that was another thing I learned from Nike, that teamwork is super important. 
um, when I was at Nike, it was extremely collaborative teamwork environment and, um, and uh, with no hierarchy. You know, ideas can come from anybody. And so we are very much that here. Uh, it's extremely collaborative. Every person is valued. Every, their contribution, you know, is, is all, everybody's contribution is valued. Um, and basically the way we set things up is that we have these kind of design studios within the company that specialize in various types of design. Like we obviously have someone, you know, you know team that works on hotels and restaurants, another one that works on beauty, another one that works on fashion retail, like, like that. Um, yeah. And that's how we're structured. So we always have uh, a project manager, a designer uh, that does dimensional design. We also have graphic design. We have a strategist. Um, usually, and depending on how big the project is, and we scale up or down how many individuals we have in each studio. And when you're talking about too, like staying ahead of things, right? Like working two years out, how much of your team, you know, or you are looking, I hate to use the word trends, but influences, what's happening? How do you yeah, stay hugely, happy Yeah, Hugely. We're always ahead of the curve. And I think um, we're viewed as thought leaders. If you Google my name or you Google the company, you'll see that there's a tremendous amount of articles and, and thought leadership pieces around the future. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just a curious person to begin with. I mean, it's just, I live what I do. And so there's no barrier um, and so I'm always looking around and seeing what's interesting, what's new and what's developing. And I think, you know, more than ever, and also just catching things that aren't necessarily, because it's easy to Google and, you know, go to McKenzie or whoever the consultants are, and they can tell you what's coming in a very, I call it Wall Street information versus actually looking at what's happening on the sociological level. Right. And that's where you can really go way out. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it's not scientific, but let me tell you, it's always worked for me. And just talking to people like, you know, you know, my partner and my life partner is a filmmaker and he just finished shooting a pilot. And, um, you know, the, 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 the show is about young people and, and one of the actors, well, she's an actress, um, uh, is just turned 21. And it's just chatting to them and understanding their world and how they think and what they value. It's so interesting. Right. And it's really interesting how there's a huge movement. Like my generation was about decadence and consumption, you know, Studio 54, drugs, sex, rock and roll, you know, wealth, status, Wall Street. Their generation is very different. It's, it seems like the values are, are placed in a different, like what they aspire to do and become is, is, has a completely different set, a, a completely different filter to it. Right. Um, and I think what's interesting is that even though everyone talks about digital, it seems like that generation values meeting what they call IRL more than ever. Right. And even shopping and going to stores. And I think that's one of the things that, one of the reasons why, um, vintage shops are just blowing up It's because not only are they inexpensive and you can find, but it's more, more importantly, it's a treasure hunt. What this, what this group looks for is uniqueness and being right. able to be individual and being able to express themselves for who they are inside. And I think that's why the whole discussion of gender, gender now is, you know, come up like, you know, like for example, the young lady, uh, who's the actress in this in this um, series doesn't identify sexually in any way, 
she's, she considers herself omnisexual, which means she's attracted to ba- basically whoever she's attracted to emotionally. Right. So gender doesn't play. And she doesn't associate herself as gay or straight or bi, you know. And so I think that's a really interesting insight. That's something that's never, ever, ever happened before. You know, it's like someone, first of all, that at that age, so young, already so self-aware about what makes them tick and how they're and how they they work emotionally is pretty amazing um and so i think this this generation that's coming i think is going to really transform society overall it, i think we're going to see a huge transformation in terms of values and finally in a weird way letting go of in a weird way the 20th century was the pinnacle of victorian values you know i mean if you think about the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, they used wood to burn, to make heat, to make a steam engine run, right? And that was technology. Well, there's there's no difference between that and putting petrol in a tank because petrol is basically pet- liquefied carbon or wood that you're putting to burn an engine to make it run, right? So finally, we're moving away from these like old values um, and even the formalities of society, you know, that you have to present yourself in certain ways and that there's certain social indicators and all those things are evaporating. Right. And I think that that's why there's so much conflict in the world right now is because the old world and the new world are clashing. And, you know, in the end, the new always wins out no matter what, because things always change or else we'd be, you know, still in horse and buggies. But it's just... Right now, there's a, there's always a transformation in the beginning of every century, and we're in the middle of that. Well, actually, we're just in the beginning. I think mm-hmm. it's going to get a lot scarier. Mm. But good scary or bad scary? Bad scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there is no good or bad. It, it's yeah. what it is. It's it's going to be a transformation, just like birth is painful. <laughs> yep. Think about that, right? I mean, mother pushing a baby through her body is not an easy thing, but yet it gives, it gives, you know, life comes from it. And so whenever, you know, I think the Asians have got it right. It's yin yang. There's a dark and there's a light. So there's always a contrast, right? So in order to have something positive, let's say what we perceive as positive and happy, often you have to go through a challenging, you know, struggle right. to arrive at something that is, that is worthwhile. And so I think that struggle is what's beginning to happen now. I think it's going to get much worse before it gets better. Got it. And um, I was reading too, or I saw your presentation um, about the new stealth status and how luxury has changed. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that too? Because I think that's super interesting moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the world of luxury is really be completely being redefined. And and that's really, it's it's always been about social currency. I mean, luxury is social currency, right? You have an object as a status symbol, like you show, and again, it's very Victorian, right? So again, it's like, I am dressed beautifully, therefore I'm an aristocratic individual with wealth and, you know, it, it, show, it sends out cues. All that is being ripped apart. You know, I mean, you've got, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, who's a building billionaire, or any of the people who are, you know, the captains of industry, who are not dressed all super fancy and formal, who don't necessarily have the Rolex watch and the fancy shoes and all those things. Um, and those individuals in a lot of ways, and just sort of the tech, you know, 
industry overall basically don't carry the same kind of Victorian values of the past. So status comes from this kind of knowing versus having. And I think that that is really the key to the future. If, if you're a luxury brand, it's no longer about the object that's being purchased. It's about the values that the brand has and how they translate to the peer groups they're trying to reach. Um, and so therefore, those who know, know. You know, it's like um, the ultimate brands are the ones that have indicators that don't have marks. Yeah. You know. Interesting. Love it. Is there a project that um, you've worked on recently that you think speaks to this or, um, you know, you're really proud of because you're pushing that idea, especially in retail? I think all of our clients right now are looking for that idea, are looking for how they reach and how they can connect in a meaningful way to customers. And, um, you know, it's a mindset. Um, in terms of how you kind of create these experiences. You have to understand their psychology of who they're trying to reach first. What is it that they aspire to? What do they value? How do they communicate? What are their peer groups like? And then you need to build experiences around that. Sometimes, you know, a brand or, you know, and also it's very regional. So it's not like, you know, we have the same values in China or the Middle East or South America that you have in the United States, especially in a city like you know, cities like New York and LA, which are incredibly, you know, wealthy and advanced in terms of consumption. So the cues there are very different than the cues you would have in other places. So you can't, and again, that's also the future. It's fragmentation. Right. So, you know, you cannot blanket things. You cannot blanket individuals or even demographics anymore. It's all about mindset. So, and cultural context. So the value that a culture has and the mindset that the individuals you're trying to reach is what you have to kind of design around right. or build around. Does that make sense? Totally. hundred percent. And for, you're doing more hospitality too, which. Yes, we do a lot of it. Yeah. And what, how are you rethinking or taking all this retail knowledge and, you know, everything that you've done in branding and bringing that to the hospitality space? Well, First of all, we don't look at it as separate. When I say retail, I look at it as the the, the, the capital R versus um, the lowercase r. So capital R means, you know, a hotel is retail, but mm-hmm. a hotel is the retail of services and experiences, right? So they're not selling objects. They're selling an experience to, you know, and whatever that brand experience might be, right? So each brand has its own kind of persona. So it's all the same. And, and I think the thing that's happening as well is that there's a fluidity that's taking place in culture that is affecting everything. So if we, and, and what I mean by that is there's a fluidity in how people define themselves, right? So there's a whole discussion about gender that's really controversial. There's a whole discussion about, you know, a lot of things. Um, and then there's also the fluidity of the customer and how they move between virtual and real. And, you know, and, and I don't even like to use the word real because actually for young people, virtual relationships through WhatsApp and texting is as real as a relationship that you have face to face. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. I've never met you before and here you are. And, you know, I'm looking at a screen. I'm looking at a bunch of digital, you know, things that are shooting off electrically and I'm having a conversation with you. So it's, it's the digital versus the non-digital and the fluidity between those two points. That is incredibly important. And then 
there's the silos of the past, right? So you had hospitality, you had, you had hotels, you had restaurants, you had, re, you know, stores, you, right? And services. All of that is blurring together. That The fluidity, so like, you know, a lot of retail experiences like fashion retailers, beauty retailers are stealing from the world of restaurants and hotels because they need that, that welcoming lifestyle, immersive component and vice versa, right? So, you know, a lot of restaurants and hotels now are brands that sell products and have, you know, their own kind of retail, you know, you can buy a Marriott pillow if you want, you know what I mean? Like, it's just insane. So I, I think that, um, you know, what's happening is it's no longer about one thing. It is about how you present the persona to the target audience you're trying to reach. Right. Right. Okay. Is there one project that you recently completed that you could tell us a little bit about in hospitality? Um, yes, actually, I think I can talk about this. So um, one of our, <laughs> well, there's a lot of confidential projects. That yeah, we're no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, one of the projects that has just been launched, um, actually, unfortunately, right when COVID hit, uh, is a project that we did for McDonald's. We did a right. new a new decor concept for them called Luna uh, for the China China market. And um, Luna, the reason it's called Luna is because it's inspired by the moon. And the reason why it's inspired by the moon is because we looked at kind of a fundamental difference between the East and the West. And it's such a basic difference that I don't think anyone even understands. (laughs) It's again, it's kind of obvious, but no one like, and they went nuts. Our our Chinese counterparts at McDonald's went nuts when we told them this. They said, well, the West is based on the sun because the year changes at the solar year. And the East is based on the moon because Chinese New Year is beginning of the lunar year. And that is a huge fundamental difference. And, And the reason for that is because obviously you can't really look at the sun, but you can look at the moon and the moon is round. And there's so many, round is so important in China. Round or in Asia in general, it's the yin, the yang, it's wholeness, it's completeness. And if you know, and if you know anything about Asian culture, Sundays is dim sum day. And it's a big giant round table where the family sits around and the lazy Susan spins all this food and they all share. And having a round table means that there's no head of the table that it's about the family as a whole. And so we created this uh, decor for for Asia, for China specifically, that had a lot of round cues in it, that had round tables and round seating areas and all of these circles. But anyways, they went completely nuts. And again, it's using cultural context and insights to create something that people then relate to. It's become a huge success. It's the most, the, the lady who runs the Chinese design department in McDonald's said it's the best decor they've ever had. Really? Um, and we've been invited now to do another one. Um, so that's really exciting. And, and yeah, so we're really excited about that because again, we use the psychology as a starting point. What is the cultural difference? What is a Chinese McDonald's still maintaining the brand of McDonald's, but how do you then make something that's culturally relevant to their region? It's so good that it's become now a global decor that is being rolled out everywhere. And Norway is one of the first places um, that Norway of all places is one of the first places to have, uh, to do a pilot on, on Luna. That's so cool. That must've been fun though, to reimagine too, such an iconic, you know, brand such as McDonald's and 
and new we're, we're, on ret- we're actually on retainer with them. We we create most of their new ideas or the new decors and and uh, so yeah, they're they're actually a really great brand to work with. They're they have a lot of uh, unfortunately they get they get kicked around a lot because they're so big. And when you're that big, you're an easy target. But it's uh, it's actually quite a fantastic company that that tries to do a lot of good. Right. Awesome. Well, just keep me, I can talk to you forever, but just keep me in mind the time. Um, tell us something about you that most people might not know. We'll get oh my God. Uh, um, I'm pretty much an open book. I guess um, <laughs> when I, when I was growing, when I was in LA um, and we had the store, we had a lot of celebrities come in and Madonna's brother would always come to the store and hang out. Christopher Ciccone was there all the time, hanging out and chatting to my partner and myself. So we we had like, uh, yeah, it was like the the relic guys day. <laughs> um, and we had like, yeah, I, I, and, a, and a friend of mine was an agent um, working at Creative Artists. So she would say, hey, you want to go to lunch with me and my friend? And it would be like Courtney Cox or, hey, you want to come over to, you know, 4th of July, you know, you know, barbecue and then Madonna herself would be actually there. And, you know, so yeah, but I mean, that's also LA, you know, it's like, I I think a lot of people don't realize that all these celebrities are actually human beings that, that do stuff, (laughs) (laughs) go shopping and do all kinds of things. Would you ever open a store again? Oh yeah. I would love to. It's just, I know how much work it is. My hat's off to people that own retail, right? I mean, it's so much work. So, um, but yeah, it's really fun because for me, retail's a show and I love putting on a show. You know, I love hosting. Again, that idea of hospitality, if you have a really good retail store, it's a hospitality experience first and a a retail store second. Right. What's your home style, like your own personal style, like, or what is your home like? Oh my God. Um, Yeah, I'm really, really fortunate. I live in a beautiful uh, old warehouse uh, from 1763. So I live in an ancient, a 300 year old um, uh, loft, basically, um, that is, I guess, I don't know, I guess it's, it's a very eclectic, style of iconoclastic art and design. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of Dutch designers, so I have a lot of Pete Henake. I have quite an extensive art collection. Um, I have, you know, bank, I collect contemporary artists. So I have like Banksy and, um, uh, Chapman brothers. Um, Mm. who else? Uh, I, I have a Warhol, believe it or not. I have, uh, Oh my God. When, you know, when you asked me like, <laughs> should yeah. I get a list of all the artists? No, I have? It's fine. No, but, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of uh, Daniel Ashram. I don't know if anyone oh, yeah. knows who he is. Yeah. I've got, I got three pieces of his, like one piece I'm incredibly proud of. That's from an earlier, uh, from his earlier work, uh, that will probably maybe if they ever do a retrospective, will go in a museum. Um, so yeah, I mean, I collect, when I sold the business, I started collecting art. It's a big passion of mine. It's where my inspiration comes from. Got it. When you say stole the business, but you still run the the studio. I mean, you still yeah, we're, we're part of the IPG group now. So yep. um, that really has helped us a lot. It, it really broke a glass ceiling that we reached when we were privately owned. So it helps us work with a lot bigger clients because obviously legal, you know, liability and legal contractual work becomes extremely complicated when you're dealing with big multinationals. And, and the IPG is really supportive with that. That's great. 
All right. So we always end the podcast with the title of the podcast. So, or the question of the title of the podcast, what has been, or what are your greatest lessons learned? Um, wow. Okay. I think my greatest lesson learned is never assume that people see things the way you do. Um, I think we are so caught up with ourselves often that we assume that everyone around us sees things in the world the same way. And because I grew up with such a kind of multinational way of living, I mean, even my parents, right? So I, I began to realize that there's so many different ways of looking at the world. And this is the thing I think that's so sad right now is that there's so much division in the world. And I think that if we can start understanding other people's point of view in a very compassionate way, I think it would heal so many of the problems that we're having as a society. And, and not only in the U.S., but everywhere in the world. I mean, I know that there's huge divisions in the U.S., um, but everywhere in the world, the same problems are happening. And I think it's because um, social media has opened the communication in a way that, that we've never had before. And just like children who are learning how to ride a bike for the first time, we're learning how to use those tools that we've, we've created for ourselves, right? right? Maybe even to our detriment. But I think if people can understand that not everyone sees things the way you do mm -hmm. and be compassionate and empathetic to that and actually start having conversations without getting emotional and heated and angry, <laughs> um, I think the world would be a lot better place and we would move forward a lot quicker. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned that for myself because I've lived in so many places and had to deal with so many different types of people. Well, yeah, and this last year, I mean, hopefully that has... Their 18 um, months or whatever number we're at. Like, I mean, hopefully that's taught us that we're all coming from a different place. Um, yes. Compassion is more important than ever. So appreciate and that. And that's, that suffering is universal, mm -hmm. you know, and that people can be sad no matter what, you know, no matter how much money they have, no matter where they come from, it, people can suffer and be sad. And, and it's our job as a fellow human being to make sure that everyone around us is okay. Because if everyone around us is okay, your life is better. Right. Right. For sure. Well, George, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure to chat with you. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see each other in real life sometime soon. <laughs> Hi, that would be wonderful. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.